All right, how's everybody doing today? Hotep, hey, this is Michael M. Hotep, founder of the African History Network, host of the African History Network show. All right, uh, share this broadcast on social media platforms. Give us a thumbs up. Give us a heart. Give us a like. Hope everybody's doing well today. So it is Monday, February 20th, 2023. And some of you all saw me on Faraji Muhammad's show, The Culture Today on the Black Star Media Network. And uh, at the end of our discussion, I talked about um, my 12-week online course uh, that I teach on Saturdays, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the slavery that they teach in school. We deal with thousands of years of history and what leads up to the transatlantic trade taking place. Okay. It's been uh, some time since I've done a uh, overview or a preview of the actual content of the course. Now, a lot of people about the content uh, of the course, and we have um, there's uh, 250 slides in, in the class. I do a PowerPoint presentation. We have book references, articles, uh, video clips. There's about 250 slides. There's uh, probably about 60, 70 articles uh, that we reference uh, in the class. And this is a 12-week online course, okay, that I teach. Now, uh, we can't start studying our history in slavery, even when we deal with the transatlantic slave trade. Um, we can't start in 1619. I know the 1619 project is airing on the Hulu channel right now, but we can't start in 1619. We can't start in the 1440s with the Portuguese getting involved in the transatlantic slave trade. And the Portuguese are the first ones involved in 1441 with Anton Gonzalez going into Mauritania. We have to understand the history chronologically. And this is something that we look at in the class. We look at this history chronologically and we go through and look at thousands of years of history and see what actually leads to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. And then we uh, look at the uh, uh, slavery here, of course, in this country that we call the United States of America. We have to understand the history chronologically and deal with the 800 year occupation of Europe by the Africans known as the Moors who take the teachings from ancient Kemet, ancient Egypt, into the Iberian Peninsula, today known as Spain and Portugal. And it's going to be these teachings that the Moors take into Europe from the Nile Valley region of Africa. It's going to be these teachings that bring Europe out of the Dark Ages, okay? And then the next period that Europe enters into is called the Renaissance era, the Renaissance era, which is a, a period of new enlightenment. So, uh, we have to deal with the 800-year occupation of Europe by the Africans known as the Moors who entered the Iberian Peninsula in 711 AD. This course not only deals with the transatlantic slave trade, but thousands of years of history that leads up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. August 20th, uh, 2019 marked the 400th year anniversary of those 20 and odd Africans or 20 and odd Negroes who came into Point Comfort August 20th, 1619. Uh, in what would later be called uh, the colony of Virginia. Now, this is on the White Lion pirate ship, um, which was an English pirate ship. And even though that did happen, um, you know, August 20, 1619 did happen, Africans were in uh, the land we call the United States of America 
going back at least uh, 51,700 years, okay? And we referenced the work from Dr. David M. Hotep, who wrote the book, The First Americans Were Africans, Documented Evidence. And we look at a number of different archae archaeological discoveries as well in the class. We look at a number of different archaeological discoveries also. Now, August 20th, uh, 2019 marked the 400th year anniversary of those 29 Africans who came into Point Comfort uh, in what would later be the colony of Virginia, okay? And they come into, it's actually Hampton, Virginia, that they come into. Now, this year was known as the year of return. 2019 was known as the year of return as many African-Americans were and continued to reconnect to Africa and uh, travel to Ghana and other West African uh, countries. When we discuss the transatlantic slave trade, we first have to understand that African people are the original people of North, Central, and South America. Okay, African people are the original people of North, Central, and South America. And we've been in the land that we call the United States of America going back at least 51,700 years. Now, this does not mean that the transatlantic slave trade did not happen. Yes, it did we have to understand thousands of years of history that lead up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place. Okay. So I posted the link here on the thread of the broadcast. You can register for this 12 week online course. We do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived and recorded. You don't have to worry about not being in class um, while the class, while the session is going on or anything like that. Uh, even after the 12 week online course is over with a year from now, two years from now, you have full access. You can go watch the entire course. So visit our website, theafricanhistorynetwork.com, theafricanhistorynetwork.com uh, to register for this 12-week online course, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understand the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. You can also use this information with your children. I would say the content is PG-13. Um, so, and I'll also share information with you how uh, studying our history benefits uh, our children and benefits us as a people because there there's studies that document this also. So recently we've seen attacks on the teaching of African-American history and African history in public schools across the country, especially in a lot of these former Confederate states. OK, we see the attacks going on against the advanced placement african-american studies course coming from the college board the attacks from florida i talked about this on the african history network show on sunday february 19th and i've been talking about this probably going back uh at least a month now uh going back to uh january of, of 2023 uh college board hits back at florida's initial rejection of ap african-american studies course and admits it made mistakes in rollout so we see these culture wars being played out. We see books being banned. Uh, we see uh, uh, Reverend Al Sharpton led a, a march in protest against Governor Ron DeSantis banning this advanced placement African-American studies course Wednesday, February 15, 2023. OK, so we saw that take place. Uh, we've seen after um, Juneteenth became a federal holiday in uh, 2021 signed in the law became a federal holiday we started seeing a lot more articles being written about juneteenth and this article here from the uh, new york times uh, is a very interesting article 
uh, in most Americans know little or nothing about Juneteenth poll fines. Most Americans know little or nothing about Juneteenth poll fines. And in the article, it talks about 60% of Americans know little or nothing about Juneteenth. And be quite honest with you, a lot of the information that's floating around about Juneteenth, a lot of that is inaccurate. It wasn't the last day of slavery. Um, uh, there's a lot the the Emancipation Proclamation did not free the enslaved Africans. So there's a lot of misinformation floating, floating around. We see attacks um, on teaching. Uh, we see attacks on having Black History Month in schools also because of these anti-critical race theory laws. So in 2022, we saw a lot of stories that dealt with how it's harder to celebrate Black History Month and teach it in schools that have these new uh, laws, these new rules. This article here from Axios.com, uh, new rules are limiting how teachers can teach Black History Month. New rules are limiting how teachers can teach Black History Month. And then we, we see stories about uh, what I call slave lessons gone wrong, um, or stories about slavery gone wrong. This is an article from uh, the USA Today, mock slave auctions, racist lessons, how US history class often traumatizes dehumanizes black students okay so you have this article here that's from 2021 and then this one republican state lawmakers want to punish schools that teach the 1619 project so we see these attacks on the 1619 project we see these attacks on teaching african-american history african history etc and a lot of this has to do with white fear a lot of this has to do with the fear of the browning of america OK, which is why us understanding our history is so critical right now. Yes, it be, yes, it should be taught in every school across the country, uh, as Dr. Carter G. Woodson, who uh, created Negro History Week in 1926, as he correctly stated. Yes, it should be. But um, what we're dealing with is the fear of the browning of America and the fear that some white people have that by the year 2043, white people will no longer be the majority population in this country. So if we look at this article here from uh, June 20th, 2018, from the New York Times, fewer births than deaths, fewer births than deaths uh, among whites in majority of U.S. states. OK, and in this article, from the New York Times, it talks about how deaths now outnumber births among white people in more than half the states in the country. Demographers have found signaling uh, what could be a faster than expected transition to a future in which whites are no longer a majority of the American population. The Census Bureau, the U.S. Census Bureau has projected that white people could drop below 50 percent of the population around 2045, a relatively slow moving change that has been years in the making. But a new report this week, when this article came out, uh, it came out in uh, June of 2018. But a new report this week found that white people are dying faster than they are being born now in 26 states out of 50 which is up from 17 states out of 50 just two years prior. And demographers say that shift might come even sooner. Quote, it's happening 
a lot faster than we thought. It's happening a lot faster than we thought, said Rogelio Sayens, S-E-S-A-E-N-Z, who is a demographer at the University of Texas at San Antonio and a co-author of the report. It examines the period from 1999 to 2016 using data from the National Center for Health Statistics the federal agency that tracks births and deaths. He said he was so surprised at the finding that at first he thought it was a mistake. And we know one of the large contributing factors is uh, the opioid crisis and how it's devastated a lot of white Americans in, in various states. Now, when you look at the 2020 census, the 2020 census was the first census since 1790 where the population of white people dropped below 60%. It was 57% in the 2020 census. You can go to census.gov and, and read it, okay? So we have all this going on right now. So us understanding our history, us understanding African history, African-American history is, is more important than ever based upon what we're dealing with. And we have to understand history, law, politics, and economics. History, law, politics, and economics, because they are all interrelated, interconnected. So when you see me on Roland Martin Unfiltered, you see me on uh, Faraji Muhammad show, The Culture, you hear me talk about this. You listen, you listen to the African History Network show, you hear me talk about this as well. Okay, now, so the 1619 project you've heard me talk about it you've heard some there is some good information there but you've heard my criticisms about it and um it's important for us to understand that much of what we've been told about virginia 1619 first africans is wrong okay much of what we've been told about virginia's 1619 first africans is wrong there's a good article from uh, virginiamercury.com from August 11th, 2019, that deals with this. And in, uh, in 1619, codified slave laws didn't exist in any of the 13 colonies. And a lot of people are so shocked when they, they hear this. The whole way that slavery evolved in this country and, the, and even the way race evolved in this country is, is different than the way we actually think it evolved, okay? I mean, that gets, also in the Bacon's Rebellion, 1675, 1676, in the colony of Virginia, what happens after Bacon's Rebellion and the introduction of the term white in the colony of Virginia around 1681 to break up the alliance between enslaved Africans, free African-Americans, poor whites, white indentured servants, things of this nature. That all comes to a head in Bacon's Rebellion, where you have this rebellion of, of, of 500, about 500 uh of people of different races, uh, different statuses, some enslaved Africans, some white indigenous servants, et cetera. And they burned down the town of Jamestown, Virginia in 1676 because they were all being exploited on the tobacco plantations in Virginia. And they realized that they had a common enemy. They were being exploited by the ruling elite. Okay, this is Bacon's Rebellion. Then you go to 1705 and the Virginia Slave Codes of 1705 which is gonna become a model and other colonies are gonna adopt these slave codes. And the Virginia Slave Codes of 1705 make a distinction between Negroes and Moors. So you get into this, you start dealing with a deep understanding of history and you start seeing how all this evolves and analogies and status and start seeing how all of this evolves. 
okay? Um, so the way this history actually happens is much different than the way we think it happens. So the way we talk that I like this type of information. Like on the broadcast. Okay, uh, continue here. And we have the uh, link here in the thread of the broadcast where you can register for this 12-week online course. Uh, it's on sale $80, regularly $130. Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade with the teacher in school. All right, now, Africans were in South Carolina in 1526, 93 years before Virginia. Okay, now this is not talked about a lot. We focus on 1619, and I have to tell people um, you know, they say we first came to these shores 1619. No, we were here thousands of years before that. But even if you just look during the transatlantic slave trade, the Spanish were taking Africans into the territory we call South Carolina in 1526. Okay, now this is something we, we deal with all this in the class because we go through and look at this history chronologically. So these are all slides from the course that I teach, that, that I put together. I'm a historian, been studying history 32 years. I put together this curriculum as well as the second class that I teach, which is from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1800 to 1968, which goes through and, and goes deep into looking at that 168-year period of history um, and analyzing what happened to us also after slavery ended. Okay, now before 1619, that was 1526, the mystery of the first enslaved Africans in what became the United States. This is a good article from Washington Post, um, September 7th, uh, 2019, September 7th, 2019, that deals with uh, this history. 1526 is not talked about a lot, okay? And you had uh, uh, th th those Africans, there's gonna be an uprising, they're gonna overthrow their oppressors and they're gonna run away and it's believed they went to live with Native Americans. So it was a, a they, the, the Spanish tried to set up the settlement, but it was a failed set up, settlement. Now, Spanish explorers brought 100 African slaves to a doomed settlement in South Carolina or Georgia. Within weeks, the subjugated revolted, then vanished. Maybe that's why they don't want us to know about 1526, because those Africans overthrew their oppressors. So maybe that's why that's not talked about a lot. But that's 93 years before uh, Jamestown, Virginia. And then in 1513, Juan Ponce de Leon, the Spanish conquistador, comes into Florida. And he has an African with him named Juan Garrido. Juan Garrido was born in West Africa around, four, uh, around uh, 1480. And Juan Garrido is probably the first African we know of by name. Probably the first African we know of by name in this land that we call the United States of America or what Native Americans call Turtle Island, Turtle Island. And Dr. David M. Hotep talks about Turtle Island in the book, The First Americans Where Africans Documented Evidence. Okay, so we look at different African, uh, some different African civilizations, ancient African civilizations like uh, ancient Nubia. And uh, we look at African empires besides Egypt that Europeans and Arabs tried to claim as their own. One of them is uh, ancient Nubia, okay, or, or Ta-Nehisi, uh, which existed from about 4500 BC to 500 AD. And Nubia is the mother of ancient Kemet. Nubia is the mother of ancient Kemet or ancient Egypt, okay, because, and, and Abyssinia or Ethiopia is the grandmother. 
So to understand uh, ancient Kemet, ancient Egypt, you have to understand Nubia and understand Ethiopia. Now, ancient Nubia or, or Ta-Seti or Ta-Nehesi, uh, also known as Kush, which was a, a more of a region. Kush was more of a region than uh, a kingdom. Uh, on, and some of that also has depends upon which period of time you're talking about as well. But ancient Nubia was a region along the Nile River located in northern Sudan and southern Egypt or southern Kemet. Okay. And today, the lower portion of Egypt and the upper portion of the Sudan, that is where Nubia was. Okay. The geographical demarcations that we see in uh, on the map that we see uh, in Africa, the 54 African nations, those largely come from the Berlin Conference of uh, 1884 and 1885, okay? Um, the, the Berlin Conference, the Conference to Divide Africa. There's a good article that I referenced, the uh, view that I did with, uh, uh, the interview that I did with Professor James Small and we talked about, I think it was in the interview where we talked about the woman king. Um, there was a good, um, there's a good article from um, thought.co, dot, uh, thought dot okay? And it's on the Berlin Conference. This one right here. Uh, the Berlin Conference to Divide Africa. Uh, the Colonization of the Continent by European Powers this article and this article is from uh june 30th 2019 and it goes in deals with some of the history of these 14 european nations having this conference in berlin germany and um the uh, and, and they carve up africa into colonies okay they carve up africa into colonies this is one of the this is uh one of the ways how uh great britain got so much territory in Africa from the Berlin Conference also. Okay, so check this out. Um, this deals with the Berlin Conference of 1884 and 1885. There was no African representation at the Berlin Conference, okay? There was no African representation at the Berlin Conference. These were all Europeans. Now, um, it was so when we look at Nubia, it was home to some of Africa's earliest kingdoms known for rich deposits of gold. Nubia was a major trading port for luxury goods that came from sub-Saharan Africa, such as incense, ivory and ebony. Uh, the first monarchy of recorded history was established in Nubia. The Nubians were also known for their, their exceptional archery skills that provided the military strength for their rulers. Uh, kings of Nubia ultimately, uh, kings of Nubia ultimately conquered and ruled Egypt uh, for about uh, a century, for about a hundred years. Monuments still stand in modern Egypt and Sudan at the sites where Nubian rulers built sites, uh, built cities, temples, and royal pyramids. Now, also, there are twice as many, when we look at the Sudan today, there are twice as many pyramids in the Sudan as there are in Egypt, okay? There are over 200 uh, uh, pyramids in, in, in the Sudan, okay? There are twice as many in the Sudan 
as there are in Egypt because of Sudan, Nubia was the mother of ancient Kemet. Okay, now in the 1800s, the Western world's interest in Nubia was awakened by the rediscovery of the ancient empire's uh, monuments, which were reported almost simultaneously by individual British, French, and American explorers. Many of them found it difficult to credit indigenous Africans for building such a civilization. So they, they tried to say that the Nubians were white as well, just like they tried to say that the ancient Egyptians were white or they, or, or some of them said that some of the archeologists said the ancient Egyptians were brown skinned Caucasians or something like this, or they tried to say they were Semites, anything, anything but black Africans. They, they, they could not admit that these were Negroes. Okay, they could not admit that these were black Africans. They had to be Semites. They had to be brown-skinned Caucasians, biracial, triracial, something like that. All right, in this um, uh, this clip right here, you have a scientist, uh, a white uh, scientist, disappointed when he finds out that ancient Egyptian pharaohs were black Africans. They did the scientific analysis and he had to admit that he had to admit that they were black Africans. He was disappointed when it, when it happened. This was from uh, this clip was from the History Channel. And we actually posted this uh, on the, our Facebook fan page, the African History Network. He got thousands of likes and went viral. Now, during the 1840s, German Egyptologist Carl Richard Lepsius, L-E-P-S-I-U-S, asserted confidently that the Greek term Ethiopian, when referring to ancient civilized people of Kush, did not apply to Negroes, did not apply to Negroes, but was used to describe the reddish-skinned people closely related to the Egyptians who belonged to the Caucasian race. Okay, it, they do whatever they can to discredit it. They don't want to admit these are black Africans. Now, um, Nubia was the first recorded monarch in history. Ancient Egypt is the first major civilization in Africa for which records are abundant. It was not, however, Africa's first first kingdom. A March 1st, 1979 New York Times front page article written by journalist Boyce uh, Rensberger reported, quote, evidence of the oldest recognizable monarchy in human history preceding the rise of the earliest Egyptian kings by several generations has been discovered in artifacts from ancient Nubia has been discovered in artifacts by ancient Nubia, end quote. Now, the artifacts, including hundreds of fragments of pottery, jewelry, stone vessels, and ceremonial uh, objects, such as incense burners, were initially recovered uh, from the Kusto uh, 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 Cemetery by Keith C. Seal, a professor at the University of Chicago, okay? So uh, then we look at, uh, the Punic Wars, and we look at civilizations like Carthage and the Carthaginians and their fight against the Romans uh, in the three Punic Wars as well. Now, we know Carthage is in North Africa. It's in the area that today is Tunisia. We look at Hannibal Barca, okay, who was who was a Carthaginian, one of the greatest military strategists in history, he, and he became a, a, a general in, at, at the age of 26, uh, so we, we'll, we go through and look at that and uh, the Punic Wars and their fight against Rome. We look at the Battle of Cannae, 216 B.C., where uh, Hannibal Barca defeats 
uh, uh, the Roman army and Rome and the Roman army, they lose about 70,000 soldiers in one day. It's looked at one of the greatest military victories in history. Uh, we know that Carthage is going to exist from 816 BCE before the Common Era or BC to uh, 146 BC. Carthage is going to be destroyed by Rome in 146 BC. And you also deal with the uh, you deal with Publius Cornelius Scipio Africanus in the in the Second Punic War, and after the Battle of Zama in 202 BC, uh, when uh, Publius Cornelius Scipio Africanus defeats uh, Hannibal Barca, is going to be uh, was Publius Cornelius Scipio at this point is going to be after the Battle of Zama that uh, uh, Scipio takes the surname Africa Africanus. Africa was not named after Publius Cornelius Scipio Africanus. He took his surname after of the Battle of Zama in 202 BC. And uh, we go, I go through and we deal with linguistics and, and understand language in the class also because Africa is a Latin word. Ka uh, is, a, uh, Latin, is a Latin suffix denoting land. The prefix Afri refers to the Afri who are a group of uh, black African people in Algeria and Tunisia. To that area where Tunisia is used to be called Carthage. OK, so in Africa means land of the free. OK, it's not named after a Roman general. Africa was not named after a Roman general at, at all. So as you get deep into the history, then you start, you know, studying language and seeing how it relates to history. And a lot of these myths that are being pushed fall apart. Uh, Carthage was founded in the 9th century BCE before the Common Era on the Gulf of Tunis from the 6th uh, uh, century BCE uh, onwards. It developed into a great trading empire covering much of the Mediterranean and was home to a brilliant civilization. In the course of the long Punic Wars uh, from 264 uh, BCE to 146 BC, uh, Carthage occupied some of Rome's territories before finally being destroyed by his rival in uh, 146 BCE. Now, in his book, World's Great Men of Color, Volume 1, history scholar J.A. Rogers asserts that the Carthaginians were descendants of the Phoenicians, a Negroid people, and that, in fact, until the rise of the doctrine of white superiority. Now, this is extremely important. Because uh, on the History Channel in 2016, they had a, uh, a series called Barbarians Rising. And I watched it, Barbarians Rising. And it dealt with 700 years of invasions in the Roman Empire. Okay, leading the fall of the Roman Empire uh, in uh, 476 AD when the Western portion, I, I should say the fall of the Western portion of the Roman Empire. Uh, 476 AD when the Vandals and the Visigoths crushed the Western portion of the Roman Empire. Okay, so um, you had uh, Nicholas Pennock, this actor Nicholas Pennock, training uh, Hannibal Barca because Hannibal was uh, an African man. And you had white people, some white people on social media, not all of them. You had some white people losing their minds saying that the History Channel was lying and that Hannibal was white and the, and the Carthaginians were white, things of this nature. This is because of these lies that have been told. And 
uh, Carthage is one of those African empires that Europeans tried to claim as their own. No, no, these were black African people. These are descendants of the Phoenicians. Okay, so uh, J.A. Rogers in World's Great Men of Color, Volume 1, said that the Carthaginians were descendants of the Phoenicians, a Negroid people, and that, in fact, until the rise of the doctrine of white superiority, Hannibal Barker was traditionally known as a black man. Now, some people may be confused. They may be thinking about Hannibal on the 18 with B.A., with B.A. Baracus and the face man and Murdoch or something like that. They may be thinking of George Papard as Hannibal or they may be thinking of Hannibal Lecter or something. No, but but uh, no, Hannibal Barker was 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 black African. He, he was not a European. OK, now, today, many encyclopedias classify the Carthaginians. Uh, as white as whites or Semites, but ancient Greek and Roman eyewitness accounts paint a different picture. The indigenous peoples of Carthage were called the Afers, A-F-E-R-S, the Afers. Ancient Roman poet Virgil, in his poem Mortem, uh, speaks of a woman from the Afer or Afra uh, race. Okay, of the uh, uh, Afar. Uh, uh, from the Afir, A-F-E-R, Afar or Afra race, A-F-R-A. And he says of her, and all her figure proves her native land. Her hair was curly, thick her lips and dark her color. Now in Library of History, uh, uh, Library of History book 20, Greek historian Diodorus mentions a Greek lieutenant named Agathocles who defeated a people in the area of present-day Tunisia in North Africa, present-day Tunisia, who were the same hue as the Ethiopians. Now, yes, Europeans also try to say that Ethiopians were white. And when and and when uh, Emperor Menelik II defeated the Italians at the Battle of Adawa, uh, in March of 1896, the Italians told the world that the Ethiopians were white because they didn't want the world to know that they were defeated by these African people. So when you go research the Battle of Adawa, March 1896, you see that the Italians were embarrassed. So they lied and said the Ethiopians were white. And, you know, some years ago when I was doing research on um, the uh, mythology of, of uh, Andromeda and Cassiopeia, uh, there are two constellations named Andromeda and Cassiopeia, but they're, they're named after African mythological African women. Um, and this, this comes out of, um, you have them in Greek mythology, but these were African women because we know like Zeus who's the king of the gods in Greek mythology, Zeus, according to Greek mythology, they tell you Zeus came from Ethiopia. Okay. Cause Zeus was African, but uh, I was researching Andromeda and Cassiopeia and I came across a, um, I came across a uh, painting that, that dealt with this mythology and it, the, the painting depicted the 
king of Ethiopia as being a Greek, as being European. And it was showing the people in the in the painting as being European. And it was depicting Andromeda, Cassiopeia, things like this as Europeans. So I'm sitting there looking at this painting. It was a, it was a picture of the painting online. I'm looking at this. So I called Professor Kava Hiawatha Kamenei. Professor Kava, some of you have seen or heard some of the interviews I've done with Professor Kaba. He's in the Hidden Colors documentaries. We're in the Black Friday documentaries together. Um, and I said, look, I, I said, I'm doing research on uh, the mythology of Andromeda and Cassiopeia. And I came across this painting that depicts the king of Ethiopia as being white. I said, when did the Greeks defeat when did the Greeks conquer Ethiopia? I don't remember that. He said they didn't. He said they didn't. They just conquered them in the artwork. So if you come across this painting and you see the king of Ethiopia depicted as a European and you see Andromeda and Cassiopeia, Cassiopeia de depicted as Europeans, then either one, you think the ancient, uh, uh, Ethiopians were white or you'll think that the Greeks conquered the Ethiopians and, and both of them are wrong but this deals with the colonization of mythology the colonization of image and as as uh, uh, J.A. Rogers said in World's Great Men of Color okay the Carthaginians were descendants of the Phoenicians, a Negroid people, and that, in fact, until the rise of the doctrine of white superiority, Hannibal Barker was traditionally known as a black man. Because as you have a rise in European powers, you have a rise in, in, in white superiority. You, you, you have Europeans who reinterpret a lot of these uh, mythological images and religious images. So we know that they were worshiping the black Madonna and child, okay, all throughout Europe. And there are over 300 images of the black Madonna and child in France. France probably has the most number of images of paintings and statues and things like this uh, of, of, of the black Madonna and child. And this was being worshiped even before the African Moors go into Europe because this comes from Asar, Aset, and Heru, who the Greeks called Osiris, Isis, and Horus. This gets, gets into a deep history, which takes you right back to ancient Africa and takes you back to the Nile Valley region of Africa. But as European, as Europeans are going out conquering people's lands in the uh, 1400s, they're going out conquer, pe conquering people's lands. They're recovering from the Black Death, the bubonic plague, which hit Europe in spurts from 1347 to 1400. And Europe loses between a quarter to a third of their population as they're going in, in into uh, the Caribbean and uh, uh, setting up uh, sugarcane plantations and they're, they're rebuilding Europe and they're extracting the mineral wealth and extract and, and, and uh, extracting African uh, uh, Africans out of uh, Africa and enslaving them, things like this. You start seeing a reinterpretation of a lot of these different figures, images, etc. And as you have a rise in European powers, you have a rise in the dominance of the European phenotype. 
and we go from the black Madonna and child to the decolorized version of that with the with the white Mary and Jesus. Okay. All right, Kate. Now, how do you all like this type of information? Give us a thumbs up, give us a heart, give us a like on this broadcast. Be sure to um uh, register for my 12-week online course that I teach that this is a that this is a preview of. This is an overview of uh, of this 12-week online course called Ancient Kemet, one of the original names for Egypt, Ancient Kemet, the Moors and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. So when you scroll down our website, you'll see the information for my radio show, the African History Network show. Uh, you'll see the information for the uh, free Black History Month lectures I'm doing each Saturday in February. The last one is Saturday, February 25th, 12 noon to 1.30 p.m. We have the link there to register for that. And uh, in, in, in the, the free Black Month lectures, we're dealing with Black resistance movements in the fight for freedom from 1630 B.C. in antiquity to 2023 Common Era. Today, attacks on voting rights and teaching African-American history. OK, uh, then we have the information for the 12 week online course. It's on sale $80, regularly $130. Um, Ancient Kemet, the Moors and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, I teach that class 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Uh, Eastern Standard Time on Saturdays. You can click right here on the link to register for the full course. We do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived and recorded. You can go back and watch it anytime. OK, Ancient Kemet, the Moors and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, where they didn't teach you in school. Now, the second class that I teach that starts up Sunday, uh, February 26, the second class that I teach is uh, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, um, 1865, 1800 to 1968. From the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1800 to 1968. And we go through and look at this history basically year by year. We go through and look at this history chronologically to see what leads up to the Civil War taking place. And then we analyze the Civil War. We look at the uh, Reconstruction Era, 1865, 1877, Jim Crow Era. Uh, we look at the Great Migration, 1915, uh, 1970, 6 million African Americans migrating from the South, up North, and out West. Uh, World War One, World War Two, Civil Rights Movement and Black Power Movement to understand what happened to us after slavery ended. What were the laws and policies put in place to put us where we are today to understand where we need to go from here? OK, so that's from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1800 to 1968. So you can register for both of those classes. Uh, the same is the, the same uh, format for both classes. And we have a bundle pack where you get uh, both classes for $120, okay? That's a $300 value because there's also five lectures that you get uh, from me free. They're gonna be uploaded into the video library. So we have the uh, link there for the bundle pack also. And if you've taken any of my uh, online courses in the past, you pay for any of the online courses in the past, you get a 50% discount on the course bundle, okay? So uh, our returning students, our previous students, Email me at ahnshow at theafricanhistorynetwork.com, ahnshow at theafricanhistorynetwork.com, or email me right through the website, and uh, we'll get you uh, enrolled uh, at a discount. Okay, so visit our website, theafricanhistorynetwork.com. All right, let's continue. 
And we definitely appreciate your support because this helps finance the African History Network. This helps support the African History Network. It helps, helps us keep broadcasting the radio show, do the research, pay some of the bills, et cetera, because it takes a lot to uh, do all of this. Okay, so how do you all like this type of information? Give us a thumbs up. Give us a heart. Give us a like on the broadcast. You can post your comments here also. Are you learning anything uh, from this uh, class, from, from this uh, class overview? Okay, so we have Carthage. Europeans try to claim Carthage uh, for the for themselves also, and uh, we deal with Carthage in the class in the Punic Wars. We talk about Numidia uh, also, which existed from about 202 BC to 46 BC. Because we go through and we'll look at different African civilizations. We'll go through and look at, look at a chronology of thousands of years of history. Now, Numidia was another great Black Berber Libyan nation in northern Algeria during the time of the Romans and Carthaginians. It began as a sovereign state and later alienated uh, and, and, and later alternated status between um, uh, a Roman province and a Roman client state. It is considered to be the first major state in the history of Algeria and uh, the Berber world, okay? The, it, it's considered to be the first major state in the history of Algeria and the Berber world. All right. Now, Namibia has also been classified by European and Arab historians as a Caucasian or Semitic built civilization. However, in his book, The Destruction of Black Civilization, Dr. Chancellor Williams declared that Libya was once so nearly all black that to be called a Libyan meant that one was black. Okay. Libya was once so black that to be called a Libyan meant that one was black. The Greek, the Greek historian Herodotus writing about Libya in his histories book four stated, quote, one thing I can add about this country so far as one knows, it is inhabited by of which two and two are not. The indigenous people are the Libyans and the Ethiopians, the Libyans and the Ethiopians. The former, the Libyans, occupying, occupying the northerly and the latter, the more southerly parts, the immigrants are the Phoenicians and the Greeks. Now, one of the most famous Berber Moors of the Roman times was uh, Masinissa, the king of Numidia, uh, who assisted the Romans against the uh, Carthaginians during the Punic Wars. Okay, so he teamed up with the Romans to help defeat the Carthaginians. And when you study Hannibal Barca and the Punic Wars, you read about the Numidians siding with the Romans. Okay, all right, now, um, evidence. Uh, uh, that proves that African people sailed to the Americas long before Columbus. There's a good article from the AtlantaBlackStar.com that uh, deals with this history. And we deal with this about 60 or 70 articles that we reference in the class. There's seven books that we reference also in the course. Uh, you don't have to buy any of these books to follow along. Uh, I use the books as reference and we uh, scan the pages and show you the, the, uh, the text on the screen. But we can look at uh, from Christopher Columbus himself, because Columbus kept a diary. 
according to renowned uh, renowned uh, American historian and linguist Leo Weiner of Harvard University, one of the strongest pieces of evidence, one of the strongest pieces of evidence to support the fact that uh, African people or black people sailed to America before Christopher Columbus was a journal entry from Columbus himself in uh, Leo Weiner's book, Africa and the Discovery of America, Africa and the Discovery of America. Um, he explains that Columbus noted in his journal that the Native Americans confirmed, quote, black skinned people had come from the southeast in boats trading in gold tipped spears. Black skinned people had come from the southeast in boats trading in gold tipped spears. Now, the discovery of American uh, narcotics in Egyptian mummies has also left some historians amazed. Recently, archaeologists discovered the presence of narcotics only known to be derived from American plants in ancient Egyptian mummies. These substances in, uh, included South American cocaine from uh, uh, erythroxylon and nicotine from uh, Nicotiana tobacco. German toxicologist Svelta Balabanova reported the findings which suggest that such compounds made their way to Africa through transatlantic trade that would predate Christopher Columbus arrival by thousands of years. Now we know Columbus never came to the land we call the United States of America. The closest he comes here is 90 miles away, but he's in the Caribbean. He's in Central America. Uh, this is the, so he's in the Americas, but he never comes to the land we call the United States of America. Now, if we look at Egyptian artifacts in North America, for years, Eurocentric archaeologists have largely turned a blind eye when it came to uh, the discovery of artifacts from ancient Egyptian, uh, from ancient Egypt being discovered in the Americas. According to uh, my friend, Dr. David M. Hotep, uh, the author of the book, The First Americans Were Africans Documented Evidence, quote, Egyptian artifacts found across North America from the Algonquin writings on the East Coast to the artifacts uh, and Egyptian place names in the Grand Canyon, end quote, are all signs of an early arrival in the Americas by Africans. This is also paired with a much earlier account of black people with incredible skills at sea, seafaring, sailing. Now, back in uh, 444, uh, back in uh, 445 BC, the Greek historian Herodotus wrote of King Ramses III leading a team of Africans uh, at sea with astounding seafaring and navigational skills. Together, both accounts would point to Africans sailing over to the New World before Columbus. Uh, so we, we, we deal with the Olmec heads and in uh, uh, Mexico, uh, in, in Central America, um, and who were the Olmecs also? We go through, once again, we go th throughout thousands of years of history, look at these different civilizations. Uh, Dr. David M. Hotep in the First Americans Were Africans talks about the Mandinka-Egyptian-Olmec connection. 
He said, quote, a major ethnic group among the ancient Egyptian Nubians were the Manding people, the Manding people, uh, an original an original Niger-Congo homeland in the uh, general vicinity of the upper Nile Valley is probably as good a hypothesis as for the origin of the Manding. The proto-Manding migration had to have uh, taken place during the African Aqualithic period. That was a wet period in Africa that lasted thousands of years at a time when the Sahara was uh, fertile and had river systems and great lakes. The Nile flowed west across the Sahara and emptied into the Atlantic Ocean during very ancient times. This would have enabled East Africans direct access to the Atlantic Ocean. The longer, uh, the longer route would be to sail to the Nile River to the Mediterranean Sea and then head west to the Atlantic Ocean. When the Manding reached uh, Central America and began mixing with the local population, they were labeled omics. When the Manding reached Central America and began mixing with the lo local population, they were labeled a mixture of the Man or Mandinka and other Indians or American Indians. Do not forget that the Manding so the Egyptians, the main, and the base of the Omics of each other. So he talked about on page two of the first Americans who are Africans. You all have seen the numerous interviews I've done with Dr. David M. And let me refresh the screen right here. Okay, we're back. I had to refresh the screen there. Okay, so can everybody, you, you all should be able to hear me okay? All right, so when the Manding reached Central America and began mixing with the local population, they were labeled Omics. The Omics were supposedly a mixture of the Manding Man, or, or Mandinka and American Indians or Amerindians. Do not forget that the Manding made up the base of the Omex. So the Egyptians, the Manding, and the base of the Omex are related to each other. Okay, this comes from page 82 of um, the First Americans Were Africans Documented Evidence by Dr. David M. Hotel. His book is a, is a fantastic book. And uh, his first book is out of print. The second book came out in 2021. And that's available at uh, Amazon. The first Americans were Africans revised and re, uh, revised and expanded. Now, in 1311 A.D., uh, thousands of years after the Olmec arrived, the Mandinka, the Mandinkan Muslim uh, Abu Bakari II sailed 2000 ships from Mali, West Africa in the Atlantic, headed west. When they reached uh, South America, they left signs on the rocks 
at the mouths of the rivers, at the mouths of rivers, warning followers of dangerous or friendly natives. Uh, so Dr. David M. Hotep talks about this on page 88 of the First Americans Were Africans documented evidence. There's also a good article from FaceToFaceAfrica.com called Way Before Columbus, Ancient Malayans Sailed to the Americas in 1311. 1311 AD, common era, face face from December 5th, 2018. In this article, it says, according to a number of sources, Abubakar II, uh, uh, Mansa, uh, uh, which means king, uh, Mansa of the Mali Empire in the 14th century, led Malayan uh, sailors to the Americas, specifically present-day Brazil, almost 200 years before Christopher Columbus arrived. Abubakari II ruled what was arguably the richest and largest empire on earth, covering nearly all of West Africa, covering nearly all of West Africa. The BBC reported in the article, uh, Africa's Great Explorer, uh, which came out December 13th, the year 2000, uh, on the uh, saga of Abubakari, Abubakari II, he left with 2,000 boats by Malayan scholar uh, Gausu Diawara notes uh, Abubakari wanted to find out whether the Atlantic Ocean, like the great river Niger that swept through Mali, had another bank. He had traveled extensively throughout and, and outside of the African continent, already owning most of the continent. His predecessor and uncle, Sundiata Keita, uh, had already founded the Mali Empire and conquered a good stretch of the Sahara Desert and the Great Forests along the West African coast. Okay, so we look at uh, West Africa and Ghana, Songhai, and Mali, but also Mansa Musa is also related. There's a relation between Mansa Musa and the fictitious character of T'Challa in Black Panther in Wakanda. Now, there's a good article from history.com, the official website of the History Channel, um, that, that talks about this, okay? Because we, we, we deal with the film Black Panther in the course because Black Panther relates to African history, African culture, African language, African spiritual systems. There are 11 different African cultures that are infused into the film Black Panther. Ruth Carter, who was the costume designer, she studied... Um, uh, uh, African cultures for uh, six months. Okay. Ruth Carter, who won an Oscar for her costume designing for the film Black Panther. And she incorporated 11 different African cultures into the movie. Okay. So uh, this article here talks about uh, from the history.com. It says in the vast fictional universe of Marvel comics, T'Challa better known as Black Panther is not only king of Wakanda, is not only king of Wakanda, he's also the richest superhero of them all. And although the uh, title of wealthiest person alive involves a tug of war between billionaire CEOs, the wealthiest person uh, in history, Mansa Musa, was more, has more in common with Marvel's first black superhero, uh, 
Mansa Musa became ruler of the Mali Empire in 1312 Common Era or AD, taking the throne after his predecessor, Abu Bakr II, for whom he'd served as deputy, went missing on a voyage he took by sea to find the edge of the Atlantic Ocean. Mansa Musa's rule came at a time. Now, this is extremely important right here. Mansa Musa's rule came at a time when European nations were struggling due to raging civil wars and a lack of resources. Okay, so Europe was dealing with poverty, uh, famine, disease, civil wars, things like this, while West Africa is thriving, while the Mali Empire is thriving. During this period, the Mali Empire flourished thanks to ample natural resources like gold and salt. So this article is entitled the fourth, uh, this 14th century African emperor remains the richest person in history. This is from uh, history.com, the official website of the History Channel, March 19th, 2018. So we know the character of Black Panther T'Challa was introduced in Fantastic Four issue 52, um, July of uh, 1966. And it was a two-part series. And in this uh, comic book, in the, in, the, in the first part of the story, T'Challa defeats the Fantastic Four in their own comic book, okay? And this was the first time we saw like an African superhero like this or a, a, a black superhero like this. And he talks about at the end of issue um, 52, uh, as you see, the uh, very chieftain of the Wakandans, of the, uh, of the, of the Wakandas, and perhaps the richest man in all the world, and perhaps the richest man in all the world. Okay, now, the uh, panther deity of Bast that we see in the, in the movie, the panther deity that watches over uh, Wakanda, that comes from Bastet, which was a netter or deity in ancient Kemet, ancient Egypt, that was in the form um, of, a, uh, of a lioness, okay, and then later a cat. Ancient Egyptian goddess worshipped in the form of a lioness and later a cat, goddess of warfare in Lower Egypt, worshipped as early as Second Dynasty, around 2890 BCE, before the Common Era. Okay, so the, 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 film, the film is so deep because it helps reconnect us to uh, African history, African culture, African language, etc. The language spoken in the film Black Panther is Isikosa, which is a real African language spoken in uh, Southern Africa. And Isikosa has the click sounds in it also. And we know the click uh, language was the original language. We know that with the Wakanda salute, Wakandan salute comes straight out of ancient Kemet. That's the, as always, right over left. And that is the uh, uh, symbol, that's the pose of the Nesubites or the pharaohs in the uh, sarcophagi, the painted coffins, the sarcophagi is right over the left. It's the symbol of power, symbol of royalty. And we see that, you know, go, go all around the world as well. Now, Wakanda is a real word. Uh, Wakanda basically uh, means possesses secret powers. And we see the word Wakanda in the Omaha, Ponca, and Sioux Indian languages also. Wakanda is not just is not something just made up. It's a real word. Um, Ruth Carter did a hell of a job on uh, the costume design for the film Black Panther. She was also the costume designer on the film Malcolm X as well.
But one of the African influences we see in the film Black Panther, and we go through and, and study the film Black Panther in the class because there's so much there. And I've done lectures. Uh, well, first of all, I did three months of research on the first Black Panther movie to be able to do my lectures on the film Black Panther. And I incorporate a lot of that into this class. OK, so how do you all like this type of information so far? Post your comments here. Give us a thumbs up. Give us a heart. Give us a like on the on this broadcast. Um, the, the Basuthu, uh, who uh, are from Lesotho, which is an enclave inside of South Africa. It's a, a country within a country. They have these blankets that we saw incorporated into uh, Black Panther. These are cultural blankets, the Basuthu heritage blankets. These blankets have a deep cultural significance and history. The world-renowned Basuthu uh, tribal blankets distinguish this nation from others by the way in which the blankets are worn as part of their everyday life. The designs have been de developed over many years with the blessing of the Lesotho royal family. Uh, we also see the Indabele of South Africa uh, represented uh, also with the gold rings worn around the necks of the Dora Malaji. Okay. Uh, and then we see the Ovahimba of Namibia represented in uh, the hairstyle of uh, one of the uh, 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 of uh, one of the elders when they are on the uh, side of the mountain and they're watching the ritual combat that uh, was taking place. Um, uh, so at the beginning of the, of the movie, uh, the ritual combat between T'Challa and Mbaku. Okay, that ritual combat comes straight from the comic book and it takes place at what's called Warrior Falls. That's the name of that waterfalls. It's called Warrior Falls. That's straight out of the Black Panther comic book and Jungle Action comic book. And this is where the ritual combat takes place to determine who's going to sit on the throne of Wakanda. So we go through and we these are all uh, different aspects of the course that I put together that we deal with. OK, to better understand African history, to better understand ourselves, to better understand African-American history. Uh, the hat that uh, Angela Bass's character, Queen Ramonda, uh, who is actually T'Challa's stepmother, if you understand the storyline, because his birth mother dies a few days after he gives birth. Um, that comes from South Africa. OK, that flat disc uh, hat is, is an Isikolo. Uh, Angela Bassett as Queen uh, Mother Ramonda makes an entrance with a large disc headdress. In most of her scenes, she wears a smaller version of the hat, which Ruth Carter borrowed from Zulu culture. The Isikolo is a hat worn by married women and was traditionally shaped from grass fronds with cotton woven through. Their sizes and colors differ between clans at times reaching a meter in diameter. For Black Panther, Ruth Carter had Ramonda's uh, dramatic white Isikolo 3D printed according to an interview with Vanity Fair. And here's a picture uh, of her with the uh, Isikolo right here, okay? All right, and then we know that the costumes of the Dora Malaji are inspired by the Maasai of Kenya, okay? And the dress of the Maasai of Kenya and the uh, the colors uh, from, from the Kenya as well, from the Maasai as well. The Dora Malaji with their deep red armor 
and tall spears looked like Maasai warriors, which was the look that Ruth Carter was going for. The Maasai shuka is, uh, is instantly recognizable as the red and blue checkered, uh, sometimes with black, yellow, or green, but red is always the base color. Uh, and, and this is the shawl draped over the semi-nomadic Maasai. Okay, so there's so many African influences in the in the film Black Panther. Um, we we use Dr. David M. Hotel's book, uh, "The First Americans is Africa." Uh, First Americans were Africans. Documented evidence is a reference. He's a friend of mine. I've interviewed him like 13, 14 times. So some of you all have seen the uh, interviews I've done with him as well, or heard the interviews uh, on the African History Network show. Page 14 of his book deals with a uh, discovery made in Allendale County, South Carolina in 2004 by Dr. Albert Goodyear. And they found 13 different types of evidence that thoroughly documented African presence in the Americas uh, dating back at least 51,700 years ago. They found artifacts, architecture, campsites, carvings, Egyptian writings, Footprints and lava, genetic M174D haploid groups dealing with DNA and genetics, linguistics, paintings, skulls, skeletons, structures, and tools. They found 13 different types of evidence uh, documenting an African presence in the land we call the United States of America, dating back at least 51,700 years ago. Now, his book is backed up by 713 footnotes and seven peer-reviewed articles as well. And we know peer-reviewed articles is the height of academia. Um, so these Africans were the Khoisan, who have the oldest DNA on the planet. They're the short-statured Africans. They go all around the world. They're the ancestors of the Ainu and the Twa, and they were here also. Uh, this is Dr. Albert Goodyear. He's a white um, archaeologist from the University of South Carolina. This article from ScienceDaily.com in uh, November 18, 2004, entitled New Evidence Puts Man in North America 50,000 Years Ago. This uh talks about his discovery. Okay, sciencedaily.com, they have all type of archaeological discoveries, scientific discoveries, et cetera, there. So who so the Khoisan um uh in an October 2012 genetic study published in Science magazine, it found that the Khoisan in Southern Africa are the oldest ethnic group of modern human uh, of modern humans, the oldest ethnic group of modern humans with their ancestral a line originating about 100,000 years ago. The Khoisan, formerly known, uh, formerly called by the derogatory term Bushmen, are genetically unique and no other currently known population has separated so early from our common modern human ancestor, according to the report. Now, here are a couple of Khoisan sisters, uh, also a couple of Khoisan African women. Now, the Khoisan live mainly in southern Africa in territories spawning Botswana, Namibia, Angola, Zambia, Zimbabwe, and South Africa. They are largely divided into two groups, hunters and gatherers, known as the Sans people, and keepers of the livestock, known as the Khoikhoi. The Khoisan languages include the distinctive click sounds that aren't found in the languages of their neighbors. This is a good article from uh, AtlantaBlackStar.com called Five Ethnic Groups That Prove the first humans were black. Okay, so you, when we look at this land historically, there were one, my, one million mounds in this land. And yes, Native Americans built some of those mounds, but Africans also built them as well. 
uh, at least 10,000 years ago during the African Aqualithic period, the mound builders of Africa, the proto-Manding, uh, were building habitation mounds to live upon even before the Manding built their mounds along the Niger River. Uh, these proto-Saharan uh, people also built dams, boats, and mounds uh, to escape the waters in case of flooding. There are also large erections formerly called Native American mounds, now known to be African mounds, that are shaped like pyramids that are found across North America. The largest ones surviving today are in the Mississippi Valley. The largest of all was, was uh, the Cahokia Mound, that's in East Illinois, Cahokia, near the area where the Mississippi and Missouri rivers converge. Now, Cyrus Thomas, director of the Eastern Mound Division uh, of the uh, Smithsonian Institute's Bureau of Eth uh, Ethnology in 1881, said, quote, uh, distinct from the American Indians, there was a race of mound builders in America distinct from the American Indians. Now, there were one million, uh, end quote, there were one million Indian mounds in North America. Today, there are only about 100,000. Uh, if you read pages 71 through 74, the first Americans were Africans documented evidence by Dr. David M. Hotep. He talks about these mounds. So we go through and look at all this history, we look at this history chronologically, thousands of years of his history. We also look at um, archaeological discovery. So in our class on Saturday, our next class on Saturday, we're going to look at some uh, archaeological discoveries. Class two and three, we'll look at archaeological discoveries. Um, this is a big one that came out in uh, June 2017 that blew everybody away. Now, once again, remember, you can register right now for this online class. As soon as you register, you can start watching the content, okay? You can watch class number one. And in, in the class, we have a live chat, so you can, a live text chat, you can ask questions. You can see me, I can't see you. So you don't, you don't have to worry about, uh, worry about that. Uh, the 12 week online course that I teach is called Ancient Kemet, the Moors and the Ma'afa, under the understanding the transatlantic slave trade where they didn't teach you in school. It's on sale $80 regularly, $130. You can use this information with your children. I would say the, uh, the content is PG-13. Um, you also get five bonus lectures uh, from me as well. They're going to be uploaded to the uh, video library. The class is 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you missed the class, it's not a problem. You can go back and watch it anytime. Even after the 12-week online course is over with, you still have access to the full course you can go back and watch it anytime click right here register for full course and um we also have a bundle pack where you get both classes for $120 that's over $300 value okay the second class that I teach which starts up um Sunday February 26 from the civil war to the civil rights movement and black power 1800 to 1968 that's 2 p.m to 4 p.m uh eastern standard time so we posted the link here uh, on the thread of the broadcast. And it's also at our website, theafricanhistorynetwork.com, theafricanhistorynetwork.com. So uh, you can register for the class uh, now and start watching uh, the content. Okay, we'll be here for uh, uh, just a few more minutes. And then our last Free Black uh, History Month lecture 
online lecture is Saturday, February 25th, 12 noon Eastern Standard Time. That's at our website also. You can register for that. So this archaeological discovery came out and it blew away the archaeological world. Uh, we're older than we thought. New find pushes human origin back 100,000 years. This is from NBCNews.com, uh, June 7th, 2017, June 7th, 2017. Uh, modern humans evolved much earlier than previously thought researchers reported on Wednesday. Um, new discoveries at a rich site in Morocco show modern humans show modern humans uh, were hunting and probably cooking game animals 300,000 years ago. A hundred have believed till now, okay? uh, and, uh, until now. So this is um, uh, over a hundred thousand years earlier than the discovery in Ethiopia that dates back about 195,000 years ago. New discoveries and new dating methods show that in fact, many of the bones belong to modern homo sapiens and they lived as far back as 300,000 to 350,000 years ago. The earliest previous homo sapiens bones date back 195,000 years ago and they're from clear across the continent in modern day Ethiopia. Taken together, the findings show modern humans were dispersed across across Africa long before anyone ever thought. So the deeper they dig, the blacker the planet gets, the more research they do, the older we get. And what these archaeological discoveries are showing is that all of this is much older than we actually thought. African people are older than we thought. We were we were uh, migrating out of the out of East Africa earlier than we thought um, we were here in this land we call the United States of America much earlier than we thought. We did not first come here conquered, conquered and shackled and changed by Europeans. No, this was our land stolen from us. Um, this article from February uh, 2010 New York Times on Crete, new evidence of very ancient mariners. It talks about how stone tools were found on the Greek island of Crete uh, over the course of two summers. And these stone tools date back 130,000 years ago, which pushes uh, maritime uh, sailing in the Mediterranean back thousands of years. It causes them to have to rethink everything, push the timeline back. Uh, the deeper they dig, the blacker the planet gets, the more research they do, the older we get. This study right here deals with how uh, positive feelings about blackness improve academic performance for black girls. This is why this type of information is so important, not just for African-Americans, but also for our youth. Uh, believing that black is beautiful, an important mantra of self-acceptance and self-love could pay major dividends in school, a new study finds. An article in the Journal of Blacks in Higher Education, okay, an article in the Journal of Blacks and Higher Education focuses on a, a new study from Sharita Butler Barnes, a professor at Washington University in St. Louis, which finds that young black women with strong racial identity are more likely to be academically engaged, curious, and persistent. The survey looked at 733 uh, black middle and high school girls in three socioeconomically um, school districts in the Midwest. Uh, the study called Promoting Resilience, 
among African-American girls, racial identity as a protective factor, racial identity as a protective factor was published in the, uh, was published on the Child Development Journal website and found that feeling positive about being black, along with feeling supported by their schools, correlated with the girls' greater academic motivation. Researchers also found that feeling good about your racial identity could act as a buffer for students in hostile or negative academic environments, okay? Researchers also found that feeling good about your racial identity could act as a buffer for students in hostile or negative academic environments. Persons of color, quote, persons of color who have unhealthy racial identity beliefs tend to perform lower in school and have more symptoms of depression, end quote, uh, Professor Sharita Butler Barnes noted. She went on to say, we found that feeling positive about being black and feeling support and belonging at school may be especially important for African-American girls, classroom engagement and curiosity. Um, feeling connected to the school may also work together with racial identity attitudes to improve academic outcomes. Read this article here from theroot.com. New studies find that positive feelings about blackness improve academic performance for black girls. This is from January 10th, 2018 from theroot.com. Now, th th this article here from blackamericaweb.com from 2012, this dealt with how, um, this dealt with a study that showed how TV watching kills black boys' self-esteem. TV watching, excessive TV watching, kills black boys' self-esteem. Uh, a, a new study, uh, a, a, new and uh, a new precise and exhaustive year-long study finds that watching television regularly distorts and ultimately destroys the self-esteem of young black males who often find themselves comparing one another to the characters they view on air, leaving them feeling trapped and as if they, uh, and as if there are quote, very few positive life paths they can aspire to end quote. Uh, so there are numerous outlets that had ran this story. Uh, this particular one comes from blackamericaweb.com July 14, 2012. Uh, so then we have, this study right here. This is a joint study by the University of Pittsburgh and Harvard University. It deals with how African-American teens with racial pride do better in school. And University of Pittsburgh has an article, can instilling racial pride in black teens lead to better educational outcomes? Uh, Pitt University study shows racially conscious parenting strategies can be the key to student success in school. Uh, AfricanGlobe.net uh, has the article, Black Teens with Racial Pride Do Better in School from January 1st, 2013. African-American teenagers perform better academically when their parents instill in them a sense of racial pride. A new study by the University of Pittsburgh and Harvard University, okay, Harvard University, uh, shows that when parents use racial socialization, such as talking to their children or engaging in activities that promote feelings of racial knowledge, pride, and connection. Feelings of racial knowledge, pride, and connection. It offsets racial discrimination's potentially negative impact 
on students' academic development, okay? Maybe this is why you have these anti-critical race theory laws and they're attacking teaching African-American history, African-American studies, et cetera. And they may not say that you can't teach it, but when they put laws in place, anti-critical race theory laws in place that are very ambiguous, it causes a fear among teachers where they oftentimes don't know what can be taught. So they will shy away from certain topics or avoid or not or or not teach a lot of this history in the first place. Because there's a fear from some people of us knowing the truth. And there's a fear of their children knowing the truth as well. Okay. So we also deal with the influence of Africa, uh, especially ancient Kemet here in the United States. Um, the, the Washington Monument is an ancient African symbol called a Tekken. There are about 1,200 Tekkenu all throughout ancient Kemet. Today, they're less than 12. Uh, and you have three uh, that are in uh, London. You have London, England, New York City, and Paris, France. Uh, there's a good article called Cleopatra's Needle, how three ancient Egyptian obelisks ended up in New York City, London, and Paris, France. And the uh, Tekken or the obelisk, that comes from the story of Asar, Aset, and Heru, who the Greeks called Osiris, Isis, and Horus. There were approximately 1,200 Tekkenu built in ancient Kemet, uh, but only about a dozen are found in Egypt today. Many of the Tekkenu removed from Egypt are now in Istanbul, Turkey, London, England, Paris, France, Berlin, Germany, New York, New York, Rome, Italy, Vatican City, and elsewhere throughout the world. The Tekkenu are, are now called obelisks by their new owners, and few know their origin or that they symbolize the resurrection of the African king Asar, who the Greeks called Osiris. Um, Tony Browder talks about this in, on page 17 of Egypt on the Potomac. This is one of the books we use in the class also. Once again, you don't have to buy any of these books, but we use them as reference. And I uh, do scan the pages so we show you the uh, page on the screen. Now, the word Mason is derived from the Latin words mass and sun. Uh, Mason is means child of light and expresses the, the desire to pursue light, which is a metaphor for the sun, which symbolizes knowledge. Okay, um, let's continue here which symbolizes knowledge. So for eons, uh, light was symbolized with knowledge and darkness was symbolized with ignorance. So when you talk about Europe being in the dark ages, it was referred to as a, as a period of ignorance and raging civil wars and famine, things of this nature. All right, let's continue. Okay. So the term child of light or sons and daughters of light was first used to identify students who had completed 42 years of study in the temples of ancient Kemet. Many Masonic temples were modeled after the temples of Kemet, places where light or knowledge was imparted in a series of steps or degrees. So the concept of going to a liberal arts college that comes out of uh, ancient Africa as well. And uh, George G.M. James talks about this in uh, the book Stolen Legacy. And he talks about the seven liberal arts in uh, in the concept of getting your credentials in going to an institution of higher learning and getting your credentials in a series of steps in a series of degrees, 
associate's degree, bachelor's degree, master's degree, PhD that comes out of the Nile Valley region of Africa also. Uh, read uh, Egypt on the Potomac by Tony Browder, pages 18 to 32, he talks about this. Now, Masonic temples are considered houses of learning or temples of learning. The term Mason or child of light is a direct reference to the highest degree of the comedic education system. The 33 degrees of instruction within Freemasonry represent a fraction, just a fraction of the 360 degrees of instruction that comprise the comedic system of education. Yet with less than 10% of the wisdom of ancient Kemet, Freemasons have held positions of influence and power throughout the world for over 200 years. Okay, read page uh, 33. Uh, so we also look at things like why is uh, Christmas celebrated on December 25th? Because nowhere in the biblical text does it state that Yeshua or, or Jesus was born on December 25th. Uh, we look at the uh, origins of Santa Claus coming from center class, which is celebrated amongst the Dutch and, you know, in the Netherlands. And they have the celebration of uh, center class and Joie de Piet. Joie de Piet uh, means Black Pete and Joie de Piet was a Moor in, in, the, in this mythology. And they have the uh, parade uh, beginning in uh, early November uh, going through going throughout the Netherlands and they commemorate uh, center class and Joie de Piet coming from Spain into the Netherlands. All right. Coming from Spain. Well, Spain is where the uh, Moors going in, in 711 AD, led by General Tariq Ibn Ziyad, uh, going to the Iberian Peninsula. Okay, so Spain is very important. Now, who, who were the Moors? The Moors' ancestors were known as the Garamantes. These were a black African people living throughout North Africa. Hannibal Barca uh, was Garamante as well as St. Augustine. The Moors, according to George G.M. James in the book Stolen Legacy, were the custodians of the ancient Egyptian mystery system. These teachings will bring Europe out of the Dark Ages. These teachings will bring Europe out of the Dark Ages. Now, the word more is derived from the Greek word maros, which literally means black or very or a very dark color. The Romans adopt this word and call them mari, M-A-U-R-I, mari. The mari were a Northwest African people who were very dark skinned. The Romans were referred to the region of Northwest Africa as Mauritania, as Mauritania. Mauritania is Latin and means the land of the black-skinned people. You'll also see the term Marish. Now, the Romans will later adopt the word as a reference for the black-skinned inhabitants they encountered in Africa. Uh, Golden Age of the Moor, edited by Dr. Ivan Van Sertema, is another book that we use in the class. And uh, if you look at pages 527 and 187, you'll see references for that information. Okay, so we go through and we look at um, uh, some of the history of the Moors also. Um, Renoko Rashidi had a really good article for AtlantaBlackStar.com called Moors, Saints, Knights, and Kings, the African Presence in Medieval and Renaissance Europe. We use two of Renoko's books in the, cl in, in the class. This is one of the books here. Um, this is uh, Black Star, the African Presence in Early Europe. Okay, Black Star, the African presence in early Europe is, is one of the books you and it deals with the history of the Moors in Europe. So the study of the African presence in history, whether in the African diaspora or Africa itself, is a really rewarding endeavor. 
in this study, we realized that slavery alone is not African history and that African history is history. The history of African people, black people, is rich and comprehensive, inspiring, and often known. Nowhere is this more the case than the African presence in medieval and Renaissance Europe. Now, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, the Moors, as early as the Middle Ages and as late as the 17th century, were, quote, commonly supposed to be black or very swarthy, and hence the word is often used for Negro, end quote. In the early 8th century, after a grim and extended resistance to the Arab invasions of North Africa, the Moors joined the triumphant surge of Islam. Following this, they crossed over from Morocco over to the Iberian Peninsula, where their swift victories and remarkable feats soon became the substance of legends. In July uh, 17, Tarif, with 400 foot soldiers and 100 horses, all Berbers successfully carried out a mission in southern Iberia. That was the reconnaissance mission to get the lay of the land to see what's going on. Then Tariq goes in the 711 AD. Tarif, um, an important city in southern Spain, is named after him. Then the 711 AD, Tariq ibn Ziyad goes in um, also, okay? Uh, and wasting no time to relish his victory, Tariq pushed on with his dashing and seemingly tireless Moorish cavalry to the Spanish city of Toledo. Within a month's time, General Tariq ibn Ziyad had effectively terminated European dominance of the Iberian Peninsula. Okay, so, so we'll also talk about Ghana, Shanghai, and Mali. Uh, one of the things that I've added to the class, because I've been teaching this class on and off since 2017, is uh, we'll, talk about, we'll also talk about Queen Nzinga. Uh, of um, the modern day Angola, because we know that the documentary from executive producer Jada Pinkett Smith is on Netflix now, African Queens, and the uh, first installment deals with Queen Nzinga. And one of my teachers, Professor Jane Small, was a consultant on the series. Okay. So when I interviewed him um, in January, we talked about. Uh, Queen and Zinga, and we talked about the African Queen series also. We also talked about Godfather of Harlem because he's the technical consultant. He's the historical consultant on Godfather of Harlem. So we definitely have to deal with Christopher Columbus uh, in this class to get a better understanding of the spread of the transatlantic slave trade and the um, um, involvement um, of, uh, of Spain because the Spanish are the second ones um, the Spanish are the second ones involved in the transatlantic slave trade. Okay. And uh, we know the, the Portuguese are the first ones involved in Spain and Portugal are right next to each other. Now convinced that what was Columbus looking for convinced that he would find a new lucrative sea route to the Orient, to Asia by sailing West to find silk, tea, spices, gold, etc. This was big business in the 15th century. Okay. Um, Europeans lost their trading route to Asia because of the fall of Constantinople to the Ottoman Turks. Okay, uh, so the Ottoman Turks capture Constantinople and thus divert the trade in Eastern European slaves away from the Mediterranean to Islamic markets. The Italians increasingly look to North Africa as their source for slaves. All right. Now, uh, Columbus never found that uh, direct water route from the west going east that he was looking for. 
when we look at where he goes on his four voyages, he never comes to the land we call the United States of America. Okay. He goes into Cuba, Haiti, Puerto Rico, Honduras, Panama, uh, the Bahamas, Hispaniola, the western third of the island of Hispaniola is where Haiti is, etc. He never comes to the land we call the United States of America. If you go to history.com and search for Columbus, they have a good chart there. It shows you where he went on his four voyages. Now, what was the transatlantic slave trade? Uh, and how is this different from the slave trade? Now, the widespread enslavement of diverse peoples for economic and political gain has played a fundamental role throughout human history in the development of nations. Ancient Greek and Roman societies operated by using slave labor, as did many uh, as did many European countries in the modern period. As early as the Middle Ages, Mediterranean cities were supplied with Moorish black slaves, Moorish black slaves from Muslim countries in North Africa. By comparison, the slave trade is a term which has grown to be associated specifically with the transatlantic trade or the triangular trade that spanned for centuries, roughly 15, well, 50, it goes back to 1441, but some people put it at 1518 because that deals with the Asiento de Negros of August 1518 signed by King Charles V of Spain, which drastically expands the transatlantic slave trade and increases the need for enslaved African labor. Um, this involved three countries, three continents, Europe, Africa, and the Americas and was responsible for human suffering on an unprecedented scale. Uh, and it, now Brazil doesn't abolish slavery to 1888. 1865 is when it is abolished in, in the United States, but uh, Cuba doesn't abolish it. Uh, it uh, Cuba abolishes it in 1886 and it's 1888 in Brazil. Now slavery comes to the new world. African slaves were first brought to the new world shortly after the discovery by uh, Christopher Columbus of the so-called New World. Um, legend has it that one slave was included in his original crew and that they could be found on Hispaniola, the island of Hispaniola, a site of present-day Haiti as early as 1501. Upon his arrival in the Bahamas, Columbus himself captured seven of the natives for their quote-unquote education, that's what he said, on his return to Spain. However, the slave trade proper only began in 1518 when the first African cargo direct from Africa landed in the West Indies. This is after the Asiento de Negros. The importation of African of Africans to work in the Americas was the inspiration of the Spanish bishop, Bartolomeu de las Casas, whose support of black slavery was motivated by humanitarian concerns. And de las Casas is a bishop. Bishop Bartolomeu de las Casas, he travels on some of the voyages with Columbus. He keeps a diary and he documents the atrocities that Columbus inflicts on the indigenous people. And he said that Columbus was responsible for killing 12 million to 25 million indigenous people. OK, so he's going to advocate that uh, uh, they stop enslaving Native Americans, try to save their souls. They suffered enough and enslave African people. OK, and uh, white people. To a lesser extent, he argued that the enslavement of Africans and even some whites, proving that in the early period, slavery did not operate according to exclusive racial demarcations. He argued that this would save the indigenous American Indian populations, which were not only dying out, but engaging in large scale resistance 
as they opposed their excessively harsh conditions. As a result, King Charles V uh, of Spain agreed to the Asiento de Negros, the Asiento de Negros or slave trading license of 1518, which uh, later represented the most coveted prize in European uh, wars, the most coveted prize in European wars, okay? Um, as he gave to those who possessed it a monopoly in slave trafficking. And this drastically expands the transatlantic slave trade, okay? All right, now we know there are at least uh, 262 skills, trades, and crafts that African people had in this country from 1619 to 1865. We were the anchor makers, artists, bakers, barrel makers, bartenders, basket makers, uh, we dealt with decorative furnishing, uh, we were jockeys, uh, herb doctors, horse trainers, gardeners, brick brick uh, makers, fishermen, engineers. The book of the other slaves, mechanics, artisans, and craftsmen, 1978, by James Newton and Ronald Lewis, goes through and breaks this down. There were at least 262 skills, trades, and crafts that African people had in this country from 1619 to uh, 1865. Okay, so this is just a, a, a sample of the type of information that we deal with in this 12-week online course that I teach, uh, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Mahafa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, where they didn't teach you in school. There's over 200 um, uh, slides in the class. There's about 60, 70 articles that we referenced. There's video clips, book references, everything, okay? Visit our website, theafricanhistorynetwork.com. We have the link also here in the thread of the broadcast. You can register right now for this course. Uh, you're going to learn so much in this class. How do you all like this type of information? Did you learn anything from this broadcast? If you learned a lot from this broadcast, you, you'll be blown away by this course. I've been teaching this class uh, on and off since 2017. I put together the, the curriculum. I developed the course. I've been studying history 32 years. The class is on sale $80, regularly $130. This is a great time to... Uh, uh, study this type of history. This also helps to support the African History Network. This helps us stay on the air, keep broadcasting, keep doing the research, pay some of the bills. Um, next class is uh, Saturday, February 25th, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We do the sessions 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Click right here to register here. As soon as you register, you can go back and watch class number one also. And uh, we have a bundle pack. You get both classes for only $120. That's over $300 value. You get five free lectures from me also that they will be in the video library when you log in into the Learn World account. Because I use two digital platforms to, to teach these classes. So um, we appreciate the financial support from you for registering for these courses as well. And then uh, Sunday, February 26th, uh, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. class number one uh, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power 1800 to 1968 starts up also. You can use this information with your children. I would say the content is PG-13. Uh, it's not overly graphic. I don't do a lot of cursing or anything like that. It's very visual, very engaging. Okay, so uh, hope to see you in class. You can also support us, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. So if you like this broadcast, if you learned a lot from it, please support the African History Network, register for the class, 
Also uh, support us through Cash App and PayPal. This does, all this does not happen without resources. And if you want to pay through Cash App, just email us and let us know that also. Uh, uh, email us at dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App, dollar sign the, I'm sorry, uh, email us at uh, AHN show at the African History Network.com, AHN show at the African History Network.com, or email us right through the website, okay? Um, because we definitely we need your email address. So if you just send us the money through Cash App and we don't have your email address, then um, I, I can't enroll you in the class. So email me, give me your name, email address, and let me know you want to send it through Cash App also. Okay. All right. And we have the ca our Cash App information around the homepage of our website as well. Uh, and our link is there because there's some fake uh, African History Network Cash App accounts. I'm still trying to get shut down. They've been stealing money from us. There are at least five out there that I've identified as fake. So that's why I put together this graphic here. That's why I put our Cash App link here on the uh, on the home page is why I put our Cash App link here. And um, that's why I have the graphic that shows the uh, um that that uh shows our actual Cash App account, dollar sign the AHN show S H O W. When you go to it, it says Michael. It may show my picture there. These other ones here are fake African History Network Cash App accounts. All right, look, we have to get out of here. Remember, at the African History Network, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world. Because right now it's correct your own behavior. It's not over till we win. We're kind of forever. Hopefully you learned a lot. Hope to see you in class. We'll talk to you next time. Peace.